It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. Go check them out. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do this weekly podcast, to which I owe a lot of my recovery to, Dr. Matt. You sure do. It's given you a great outlet to have a focus every week on recovery, your recovery, other people's recovery. I think it's been a smart plan on your part. Now, so have you ever noticed that sometimes in life, uh, themes seem to be present? Definitely. You know, sometimes it's trials, sometimes it's relaxation, sometimes it's just, it just, there's always seems to be themes that go along in my life. And, and I really love it when all of a sudden I go, somebody's trying to tell me something. Right. So last week we had a guest on who sat down in that chair. Her name was Amy. I remember. And she said one of her projects while she was going to school to get her master's was her why. And so she had to write a page on what her why is. Yeah, I and, like that. And, and and it was kind of why she was doing the program or why, yeah. you know. Meaning, purpose, all that. And so, and I thought, hey, that's pretty interesting, you know, and I've never mm-hmm. really thought about what my why is. Mm-hmm. And then yesterday I was at a luncheon for the Women's Council of Realtors. Of course you were. Because it's part of my job. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it is. And they had a speaker. Uh-huh. And uh, he was the eight continent man. Eight continent man, yeah. not incontinent man. No, eight continent okay. man. All right. And this man uh, had uh, survived cancer uh-huh. and decided he was going to run a marathon in every continent. Oh, yeah, okay. And uh, he came and spoke. Cool. And, uh, it, I mean, it was great. He had some good catchphrases. So we got two guys at the women's conference. Oh, my brother was there, too. And your brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is making less sense as we go, but go ahead. But it's my life, and, yeah. and it makes sense. Yeah. And so uh, he had some pretty cool catchphrases. So he, he ran eight a marathon on all eight continents. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And his catchphrases were something like this, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Yeah, I've heard that one, yeah. And, and I like that one. He goes, uh, my ego is not my amigo. <laughs> <laughs> but ah, he had such, I don't know if that's Freud approved, but all but right. He, but he had this this laugh that was just infectious. Cool. And uh, I'm too grateful to be hateful. Those are like, his three. That's, that's a good one. I yeah. like that. Yeah. But then he started talking about his why. Oh, did and he use that same terminology? Yes, yeah. All he right. goes, so I had to figure out what my why was. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you're not going to believe this, but my why is you. And he was pointing to everybody in the audience. And everybody's mm. like, wow. And what he meant by it was that he was on this earth to do service to others. And he was kind of a motivational speaker. And he goes, you know, I wasn't, I'm, I'm here for you. He goes, I'm going to do this speech and I hope you just walk away with one thing that's going to change your life. Now, it's crazy to think that just one thing can change your life. Mm-hmm. One insignificant thing, one chance meeting, if you believe in chance or if you believe in destiny or whatever, one meeting can change your life, but it really can. Sure. And so it got me to thinking about what my why is. Like I could tell you 20 years ago, my why was I wanted to be on TV. I wanted to do this. And it was all kind of selfish. And, and it was things that I thought that I wanted. 
And then it was all taken away from me, and I had to figure out what my why really is. Because I had put so much stock into the TV, the radio, the persona, and all that stuff, I thought that was my why. So you felt like your why, you said selfish, was kind of maybe about more superficial things? 100%. 100%. Did I enjoy it? Did I do good things while I was doing that? Yes. But it was all to feed my ego. And, your ego was your amigo. Yes, it was. <laughs> I love that. And it was. And yeah. so when all that was taken away and it was no longer cool to be a Casey Scott fan and I had to do It wasn't some, very cool to be Casey Scott for a minute there. No, it, no it, trust me, it, it, it sucked. Yeah. Um, but I had to figure out what my why is. Right on. And who I am and what I like because I was so driven and so focused on these things that I thought I needed to make my life full. Mm-hmm. That they were all taken away. Yeah, you could say that way. I mean, I mean, not my, not my family, not the, but the job. Well, let's be honest. Your family changed. If you want to think of it that way, yeah. you're still good friends with your ex-wife, and and you have great relationship with your kids. But but part of your your drinking influenced the the was one of the causes of the divorce. Wouldn't you agree? One of the main causes of yeah. my divorce. Right. Yeah. And my ego and my attitude and a lot of things. And so when I was stripped away from with that, I mean, I had to figure out who I was and what I wanted my wife, my life to, to look like. And so that's why I think self-reflection is so important because I finally sat down and, and figured out who do I want to be? What do I want to be? And I want to be a good person. I want to be a good provider. And I want to be a service to others. That's why when we started this, this podcast is so important to me because it is a way to give back. And and and, and my why now is giving back. I get more from giving than taking anything. It's crazy how that works. Yeah, service is a, is a wonderful thing. It often does more for us than it does for other people. And so it's a win-win for sure. But you know, it's funny when in our young life, when we're young adults, uh, naturally and, and understandably are, we have to survive. Like, yeah. so, so we're, we're focused on like, well, what am I going to do to make money? What am I going to do, you know, to be a professional? What am I going to do if I have a family to take care of? And so it's easy to get caught up in that ego. It's easy to get, especially if you have some success along the early stages, then you kind of start thinking, well, I'm pretty special. I'm pretty important. And I think anybody in any field of work, that's susceptible, you're susceptible to that. Right. And so you kind of, maybe forget some of those lessons that most of us learned in childhood about service and giving back. Better to give than receive. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know. Have you it, ever received something it, really cool? pretty good, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and you forget about gratitude, and, and it's easy to get caught up in that. And sometimes, um, unfortunately, certain things happen that are tragic, but the positive side can be we kind of get humbled. And we mm-hmm. have to reevaluate things. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about, that you realized service and gratitude really are your why more than the kind of self-promotion stuff. And that's the goal, and that's where I'm aiming uh, to, to, to move my life to. But the thing that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was is that, you know, we talk about the three pillars or the four pillars or whatever your recovery is. Right. And a lot of it's mental, physical, uh, and spiritual. spiritual right. In spiritual, I guess you could put service in spiritual, but you know, anytime we get somebody on the podcast, 
Uh, and the reason they sit down, like Becky's about to, and, and tell her story, they get a little nervous. But they always say, and it sounds cliche, but almost everybody who comes on this podcast says it either out loud or in their mind goes, if this will help just one person, mm-hmm. it'll be worth it. Yeah. And service is such an integral part of recovery that I don't think sometimes we give it enough credit or it's due. Well, I will tell you one of the things I've learned from doing this show with you is I had no idea how many people in our community who are doing amazing things for others and and really setting the standard for how to serve each other are people in recovery. I I just didn't really realize that. There are so many people in all walks of life and serving others in a lot of different capacities uh, who are people in recovery and part of that service provides them the healthy, positive energy to to stay sober and and do good for others. So I mean, it's it's impressive what people do with their lives once they find recovery. Remember when the pandemic was in full swing and there be there was a kind of movement that said all heroes don't wear capes, right? And it was and it was kind of highlighting the frontline responders and all those mm-hmm. that are go above and beyond. Definitely. Okay? But on this podcast, all heroes don't wear capes. Some of them have multiple felonies, sleeve tattooed arms, <laughs> but they are right. heroes. They you, are. you know, Definitely. that have been through the fire and walked out the other side and says, listen, I can show you how to do this. I can tell you what I've seen and I can help you navigate that. And, yeah. and, and that's They're mentoring what, other people. And that's very valuable. And so that's why I'm so excited for our guest today. Yeah. Her name is Becky Tuttle. Right. She's a registered nurse. She's an alcoholic. She's in recovery. And we're going to find out about her story because it really is inspiring. Because as we are riding up in the elevator, hi, Becky, how are you? Good, how are you? She said to me, she goes, I'm nervous. I go, don't be nervous. You're just talking to two friends. She goes, but my story is not salacious. It's not Jerry Springer-esque. You know what I mean? it's It's a pretty basic story. And I said, but I think that's what the majority of people out there are dealing with. You know, a lot of times we do get people on here that have had beta fish fights in their garage or homeless people sleeping in their parents' basement. You know what I mean? And that was just one guest. That was just one person, yeah. (laughs) You know, but we've had some crazy stuff. Right. We get those stories sometimes that are just pretty, you know, they're outliers. Yeah. But the majority of people, they're just like you and I or anybody else, and they've you know, came to addiction in their way and we talk about how they got out of it and what they're doing. And I think personally, uh, those are more of the, those are the inspiring stories because we're all, we can relate to that better. So why was your reason for wanting to do this podcast, Becky? Um, because I think that there's a lot of people that can be reached, even as you mentioned, just that one person, um, there is that one person, whether they're a medical professional, I just see so many normal people. And if I can share my story and it influences somebody, and be to part of being an addict is being alone. And um, just want people to know that they're not alone and that they can recover and enjoy a beautiful life. I totally, I totally agree with that. In fact, I think uh, the, the key word I think of is hope versus hopelessness. You know, we're either hopeful or hopeless. And when you feel alone and when you feel like, you know, there there's no way to get out of being stuck in what you're stuck with, uh, it feels hopeless. And, you know, I have people come in my office, sit on the couch, talk to me about feeling hopeless, I guess, every day. Um, and sometimes the hopefulness comes in unexpected 
places. And sometimes it's a, it's a brief interaction with somebody. Sometimes it's a longer thing. Sometimes it's a stranger. Sometimes it's someone you know well. But it's always a personal connection. And so by you sharing your story, you're offering a personal connection to anybody who's willing to listen. And therefore, they have the opportunity to grab some hope. And so I'm excited to hear your story today. You know, I heard this uh, person the other day talking on the radio and they were talking about hope and how powerful hope is. And, and by the way, hope is a studied subject. It's We use hope as a regular term, but if anybody's a nerd out there and wants to read stuff, you can look up C.R. Snyder with an S mm-hmm. and look at his research on hope. Hope is a powerful psychological concept. Go ahead. The only way hope is not beneficial to an addict in recovery is that you hope this magically goes away. Ah, uh, yeah. You know what magical I mean? thinking, yeah, yeah. And sometimes we do that. I mean, there was a lot of years. I hope for magic every day. Yeah, I mean, I battled my addiction for so many years and tried to outthink it, outmaneuver it, and all this stuff. And I'll be honest with you, I hope it would just go yeah, away. Maybe tomorrow I'll wake up, I won't have it. But that will not work. Right. I, and, and, and I don't want to make anyone mad, but this is a disease that you can't hope and you can't pray wish away. it away. You can't. can't. Yeah, it doesn't. You have to do the work, and you have to do it for yourself. But once, but once hope becomes part of your process, mm-hmm. then work becomes exciting. You see the process. You see the progress. It feels good. You, hope is a cool concept because it builds on itself. Yes. So success leads to more success. Hope leads to more hope. Like a snowball. Yeah. There's a positive snowball effect. Absolutely. And I love it. And so I can't wait to hear Becky's story. So where does the story of young Becky begin? So I grew up in Ogden, Utah. Yeah. Um, I say that Fact, because I grew yeah. up in Ogden, Utah. <laughs> well, let's look at your hat. Oh, yeah, it says Ogden, Ogden Maid. Yeah. yeah. You know, before Ogden Maid was a thing, we used to go, you're from Ogden? Yeah, the biggity, biggity, oh. <laughs> O-Town. O-Town. Right. Yeah, I have. I had a great childhood. I'm the youngest of six kids, um, the significant youngest. Um, my older brothers are quite a bit older than me, and then I have an older sister. Um, you're so, kind of the trailer kid. Yeah, I was like the tail end, um, accident child, you would call it. Um, <laughs> oops, baby. Oops, yeah. I think my mom had me when she was in her early, like 40 at least. So, um, so, but my parents were great. They um, they supported me. They loved me. Um, I had a really normal childhood. My dad was a coach for all of our, our girls' events. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and just very on it and made dinner. Just your typical, like, 19... 19- 70s wife um and they I, I had great parents i had great family i love my family um, so no real trauma to speak of no no not at all um when i got into my teenage years my parents they were older my dad was retired they traveled a lot so i was home home a lot on my own and could make good decisions kept the house clean like went to school didn't slough um I was didn't just throw a, big parties didn't like Casey would have. Parties and did. I think I think I had like one, like but it was just like small, like hiding in the little closet. Like, yeah, no lights you, on in the front, so yeah, neighbors could yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, everybody snuck in the back door, <laughs> park three houses down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you've done yeah. this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I had some good friends, um, but when I was about sixteen, like just something clicked, and I like felt a lot of pressure, and I didn't want to feel that anymore, and. At that time, I just kind of – I still did well in school, but I didn't want to go. Um, I didn't feel like I maybe fit in all the way. Um, there was friends that like – like my really – my close childhood friends, they kind of were doing their – they we were separating. Um, now, you use the word pressure, 
and it's a very good word for mm-hmm. it. But what I'm hearing is anxiety. There's a strong family history of anxiety. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> but, but yeah, back then yeah. in the in the mm-hmm. mid '80s, yeah. anxiety wasn't often talked about. No, in fact, I think it still isn't talked about enough in families. But yeah, did you feel like your family talked about those things? Or oh no, yeah. no, everything was fine. Um, we didn't talk about a lot of problems. Um, usually, was, usually parents did mm-hmm. stuff like, well, they're getting good grades. And yes, everything's okay. She does her chores yeah. and, yeah. you know, yeah. she's not causing me any trouble, so she must be fine. Hasn't mm-hmm. pierced her belly button yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't feel like I had, like, really deep conversations with my mom. Well, she was my mom, but it wasn't, like, one of those really close-knit um, relationships sure. where I could tell her all my problems with, with boyfriends and friends. You know, it was just – there wasn't problems, so right. why talk about it? Well, there was problems, but we didn't talk about it, I should right, say. Right, right. You wanted yeah. to talk about just the things that were going well. Yeah. But you're around 15, 16, and you're having this pressure, and you don't want to go to school, uh, but you're still just maintaining and Mm -hmm. and going through everyday life. Yeah. I was like – I was checking the boxes. I was doing fine. But um, that's when I took my first drink, and um, that's – it was a horror story. We were going to a haunted house, and I think that they made some jungle juice. I had never drank before, and I didn't know. And hard alcohol hits you harder Mm -hmm. than like if you were sipping on a beer or whatever. Um, and it knocked my socks off. I didn't go home that night. Um, I think I ran into a tree. Um, there, it was a disaster. Mm. And so, um, but it was a disaster. But did you have a good time? No, no. Because sometimes we'll hear that because <laughs> most people, the average person, will go, "It was a disaster. I'm not doing that again." Well, but you wouldn't be here if you didn't do it again. How, oh yes. <laughs> how about this? Was it a relief to some of your anxiety, or it, did it make it worse? Yeah, it probably was just like a way to like say like I don't have to be perfect. I can go screw up, and now and there just the pressure was released a little bit that I didn't have this like path to cross or this path to walk that where i couldn't step off of sounds it. like you felt like a lot of shoulds like you should mm-hmm. do certain things at that point mm-hmm. you're like you're supposed to be a certain way a lot of responsibilities is that yeah. kind yeah. of the pressure part of that were you um, an active member in the church yeah yeah so in in the 80s the church which was church like, would that be LDS church. the church of jesus oh, christ yeah. of latter-day saints all right yeah. just so the listeners yeah. yeah yeah um and in the 80s like growing up it was a lot different um i find the church like a lot more understanding and comforting versus in the 80s it was like if you fall off this path then you're a sinner pretty and rigid right it was very yeah. rigid yeah um and like i don't fault the church like the LDS church or anything for for the choices that i made at that time but it was just it was just something well, didn't something when went you want to talk wrong. about pressure that's yeah. a lot of pressure yeah. to put on yeah. a young mind the, the, yeah. well the truth is uh we have biological predispositions mm-hmm. towards physical traits as well as psychological traits and so things like depression and anxiety if like you said they run in the family then you have a predisposition mm-hmm. to that and so a kid who has a predisposition to anxiety doesn't need a lot of extra pressure about rigid rules because they already are putting that on themselves. And so for some kids that are, that don't have that predisposition, they can grow up in an environment with lots of rigid rules and be like, yeah, whatever. I didn't even really notice. And, and <laughs> Casey, and then, uh, other people who kind of grow up with that, it's like a hyper conscientiousness. And they're like, Oh my goodness, I've really got to follow all the rules. And you're putting extra pressure on yourself plus the pressure from the outside. And, we don't realize that that those kids are really carrying around a lot of stress and pressure from their predisposed anxiety plus 
the rigid rules and expectations of either church or home life or whatever. And it can be tremendous amounts of stress that uh, we don't always see on the outside. It's often just on the inside. So the day after the disastrous first partying, how did you feel? I felt terrible. I felt bad. I'm like, I'm never going to do this again. Um, Probably guilt. But you're like, well, not everybody has a terrible experience. Like, i got to try it again. Like, like people appear to be having a lot of fun when they – when they drink and they party and, you know, so I went to a party and I remember taking my first sip of beer and it was disgusting. I had to have a Jolly Rancher in my mouth just to even tolerate it. <laughs> but I got it down, you know, because this is what I wanted to do. I'm you not know? a quitter. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a quitter. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do this. I'm going to do it right. So, of course, I did it right because there you that's go. That's the personality. And then, yeah. you know, another disaster happens, you know, just a humiliation. When I when I drink, I do it well. And it's embarrassing, and I do stupid stuff, and um, and I'm I don't stop because like gotta just keep going because that's what we're supposed to do is just mm-hmm. and 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 have fun. But you know, I didn't find that I like I was sometimes I'd have fun. It wasn't always like a terrible experience. But when there was a terrible experience, I remembered it. Mm-hmm. Um, you to this day still remember yeah, those humiliating re- things. Yeah, and and then at some point, alcohol became more of a co- like it took away that like I didn't have to remember that and it took away the the fear and the anxiety and the pain so did you uh start to gain sort of a reputation like uh, because you did kind of outlandish things when you were drinking or I would have called you two beer becky <laughs> <laughs> um I think I tr- tried to avoid that reputation of like the partier or the slut or whatever you know um so I went to college so I left. Okay. <laughs> um, I went to college in my senior year. Oh, you so left that, early from mm-hmm. high school. Oh, yeah, so yeah. that. But I your could, grades were good enough that that was yeah, an option. Yeah. So I kind of exited out of the high school life and I went to college. Um, you know, had boyfriend breakups, so on and so forth. Um, just a normal, like, ritual of growing up. Um, sure. You know, so I went to college and um, everything was going fine in college. I'd like. Did you party in college? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I wasn't. A, I wasn't like in sororities or anything because I went to Weber State. So I like literally was going to the like yeah, yep. Harrison High, as you call it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I lived at home still. Um, my parents were on a mission. They left to go on a mission when I was eighteen years old. They went on a mission to India. <laughs> and that's for the LDS Church. Yeah. For the listeners who don't know, yeah. like. Everybody knows the young missionaries, but oftentimes when couples mm-hmm. get older, they'll go out and serve and do missionary mm-hmm. work. So they were in India? They were in India, Wow, yeah. that's a long ways away. Yeah, and they – so like at 18, I was pretty much on my own. Um, my parents – I mean, they, so you were again, living they're living at great. home, but it was your own house at that point. It was my own point. house, yeah. So yeah. I can control – my brother lived there, and he was trying to be my supervisor, but, you know. I'm sure that went well, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're in college. Your parents are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like moved out briefly. Um, so, did yeah. you know what you wanted to do in college? No, I went. I got a bachelor's degree in lifestyle management, which is like essentially health, recreation, nutrition, and fitness. Because like I had it all together, and like I wanted to teach people how to be healthy. You mm-hmm. know. <laughs> so um, after I got my bachelor's degree, I went and worked at a residential treatment center um, out in Syracuse. Um, for substance, for alcohol, uh, for youth. Yeah. Yeah. So, so all behavior problems for behavior mm-hmm. disordered yeah. kids. Yeah, like okay. there was a lot of kids from California that came. They were on some pr- California program. There was a lot of wealthy children. Um, 
So, excuse me. Which happens a lot in Utah because different states legislate residential treatment differently. And in the state of Utah, um, you know, because of our legislation, we can have uh, residential programs that go up to age 18. And so a lot of kids from out of state come still to this day to Utah. Yeah. Yes. So that was like a job. I was was called a house parent. And so I'd stay there um, for, I'd sleep there. And I worked three days in a row. Um, when I was in college, I was a residential treatment parent at age like 22. Mm-hmm. I had a house and they would have troubled kids come live with me. I I mean, I think it all worked out fine. But what a bad idea is that? <laughs> like, right? like, like they were calling me a residential treatment parent. And I was still like, you know, more concerned with my skateboard than I was with, yeah. you know, what this kid was doing. I just would drop him off at his school every day and yeah. feed him, you know, I go waffles in the morning. I don't know. It's crazy. But yeah, those those are kind of uh, funny jobs that we have when yeah. we're younger. So you're working at the treatment center. Yeah. And I'm also dating my husband at this time. So um Dating my husband at the treatment center. My parents are home from a mission. I'm still living at home, but um, I'm starting to like live in the adult world. Um, still drinking, but I would call it controlled, whatever, um, whatever you want to call it. But I well, your up- your parents who are very active in the LDS Church, mm-hmm. return missionaries mm-hmm. now as parents. So they're they're really active. Did, were they aware that you drank? Has that, no, no. No. Okay. So no. what was no. that pressure like? No, I was like, like a closet to- drinker. Like I did, I. That what happened at home was very different presentation than what how I lived. So was that a strange life yeah. to live? Like this duality of like I'm one way one place and one way another. Yeah. Well, I just didn't want to hurt them or upset them. Like that I had chosen a different path and that wasn't the same as theirs. Um, so yeah, I guess it was awkward. But I, I tried. It, I kept it very distant like where to where i think that they probably didn't know or if they did they didn't say anything what about like your siblings or even no. your 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 husband at the time oh my boyfriend? husband yeah because we would go we would go drink together. together yeah okay. right. yeah yeah so um i um where was i going with this anyhow yeah so we drink together and essentially i ended up getting pregnant so now we have a baby um, coming and now it was really time to grow up and in the typical culture like you get married because that's just what you're supposed to do is to have like a cohesive parenting for this new child that's coming into the world so we um so we ended up getting married um it was terrible to tell my parents that i, I don't even know what they know what to say like i didn't have like some spectacular million dollar wedding i had very simple wedding um the People like the neighborhood came, but it wasn't like some extravaganza, like celebration, if you want to call it. It was a marriage, and then. And your older siblings, mm-hmm. so you were the youngest of how many? I have four older brothers and an older sister. Okay, so a lot. So a lot went before you. Did any of? Sometimes it's easier if one of the older ones messes up big time. But had they all kind of followed mom and dad's path pretty um, closely? My oldest brother, um, he's not. Um, active in the church so he took his own path my other three brothers are or my other two brothers are my youngest brother i would say um he's not super active but they didn't um have any major like obvious issues such as me so okay. my sister um she's so you were the first one to come along to really challenge mom and yeah. dad a little i think my oldest there. brother challenged them um and i did okay so so you yeah. got married um and do you start living right or do you keep drinking? No. So um, 
So I get married. I have my oldest daughter. Best thing that ever happened to me. So that was the time to kind of clean up a little bit. So at that time, I was able to stop drinking. Like when I was pregnant, I didn't drink. Um, I when I when they were small, I would just be an occasional drink. It was more, um, just more social, more appropriate. We I would call it. Um, and then I got pregnant with my second daughter, and um, again I was able to quit. Not a big deal. Um, and. At one point, I was like, I need to stop drinking. Like, I had this feeling, like, I need to stop doing this. Um, my husband was out of town on a job in Cedar City. He works construction, and and it was, and I stopped. Like, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to do. But he he came back, and I didn't communicate that to him. And I and so we just continued to like occasionally drink, go out to dinner, or whatever. So he didn't know you had been having that feeling of yeah, no, needing. No, to I quit. never shared it with him. Um, yeah, I was like, I yeah, I really need to start like. You were getting scared. I don't know if I was even getting scared. I just had like this feeling that something was going to go wrong, but I oh, didn't act on that. Premonition, huh? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So, um, I again, I, I was a pretty normal drinker. I had some friends that we would just go out on occasion, but I was I was mom now. So my kids took a huge they, – they became the priority, and I took good care of my kids. Um, I was a good mom. Um, they, my kids – had everything that they needed they were provided for and probably to ex- excess um we moved to camas um about f- when my oldest daughter was 5 and that was kind of a game changer for me i think that's when things started to get a little bit abnormal so i moved out of my hometown where i had close family i could ditch they were just 10 minutes away um friends there and i moved to camas where i was a little bit alone we live on a mountain up there and and your kids are what age again? Um, my daughter started kindergarten. My youngest daughter started started kindergarten there, and my oldest started first or second grade. Okay, yeah. And what was the reason to? Because for the people that don't mm-hmm. know, you know, Ogden is a is a city, mm-hmm. and then Camas is on the other side of the mountain, and it's it's pretty rural, especially probably you know it's it's growing a little, but like yeah. it's pretty rural. Lots of farms, lots of space between houses. Was that the lure of moving out there? Yeah, yeah. In Ogden, we had just this little backyard, and we wanted more land. We had this Alaska Malamute that needed a place to run so we wouldn't get locked up all the time. Um, so moved out there just for a new location, more property. But definitely more isolation because you're, you're used to being on top of each other in the city, yeah. and then now you move to mm-hmm. the country where you know it's a lot of space between houses. There's a lot of space between houses, and we'll get to that. <laughs> And that's yeah. when you started to notice that things had changed a little bit. Yeah. Well, still, I didn't notice that things had changed because I was in such denial. Um, like I was isolated. I one of my friends moved from Ogden, so I had connection there. We lived in. We just had a little neighborhood like area of party years. At the, this point in your career, are you a registered nurse? Or are you still working for? Oh, I forgot to tell you that. Well, yeah. I missed that part. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Can you imagine this? <laughs> no, no. Just go back to it. Okay. okay. So, yeah, I have my two kids. I have this degree that's kind of like doesn't pay very well. Don't really know what to do with it. It's a little bit of everything, but not super solid. Um, like where I can go be a, like a dietitian. I have nutrition background, but I can't be a dietitian. So I just was too broad of a degree. So I went, I decided, well, I have all the prereqs for nursing I never dreamed of being a nurse. I didn't wake like I wasn't ingrained in my in my soul from a child. I kind of thought it was gross. 
um, a little bit. Well, let's be honest. A lot of nursing is pretty gross. <laughs> um, but it, it just made sense. And so I um, got – finally, I had to apply to – the first time I didn't get in, the second time I got in. So I went to nursing school at Weber State. Um, and Which is a pretty tough program to get into. It's very competitive. Very competitive. It was hard to get in. And I did it with two small children. And That's so, impressive. Yeah. It was quite a – that was really an accomplishment, an accom- a huge accomplishment. It was hard. There's a lot, huge knowledge base that you have to learn in a very short amount of time. Um, yeah, so that's how I got into nursing. And I forgot another important detail. Well, tell us. <laughs> this is your story. So after um, after the birth of my second child, I um, was diagnosed with Graves' disease, so, which is oh. an autom- autoimmune disease that um, attacks your thyroid. So, um, so really low energy. Hi. Oh, high I'm energy. High. So yeah. you're high. Okay. Yeah. So like I would be driving down the w- the road and my foot would just be pumping on the on the pedal and like what is wrong? So I was diagnosed with that and it kind of it which causes extreme anxiety, like uh, off the charts anxiety. Um, it affects every body system. Heart rate goes high. Like you have a tremor. Super nervous. Um, super anxious. So I was diagnosed with that and but it kind of went away. So I don't know if I went into remission or not, or if alcohol suppresses the thyroid. So, so I don't know if there is a connection. I do think that there's a pretty strong connection between having Graves' disease with the extreme anxiety and drinking. So, um, okay. So back up at Tacoma. So we're living. In You're Cam- back on Party Mountain. You we're got back some party on Party friends. Mountain. Got the party friends. We threw a raging New Year's parties. Um, it was fun. We're still having a pretty good time. Um, like it was still, it was becoming abnormal drinking at that point. Um, but I don't, wouldn't call myself an alcoholic at that point. Well, abnormal in what? Like, what, what do you mean by that? It's just, but it was becoming more excessive. So it wasn't and, just social anymore. Yeah, that, yeah. I would like maybe disappear over because I have a lot of space around my house. I would just go disappear like behind a tree and 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 drink a beer but see that's how yeah. the disease works at yeah. first you're drinking on friday or you're drinking on saturday and then everything's good and then you're waiting for holidays like cinco de mayo uh st patrick's day any holiday you can imagine you know and, and, but then it's like and then then you start to negotiate with yourself you're like well i'm only gonna drink you know on friday or i'm only gonna drink on saturday and then you go well but thursday's like little friday so maybe we can drink on thursday <laughs> right and then you go but sunday is really fun day and so we'll just drink on sunday and then monday comes along and i'm hung over so i'm just going to drink a little on monday to help me get through the day and then next thing you know you're just sober for tuesday and wednesday and then i mean it's but that's that's the madness of the mm-hmm. disease and then you'll start to say things like well i'm not going to drink until at least it's five o'clock you know what i mean right. and then five becomes right. two and, and you're like it's five o'clock somewhere Jimmy Buffett song, right? You know, and but, the, but isn't it crazy how that creeps in and how your mind can justify and rationalize just about any way to drink? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so when I think, and, and I only speak from my experience, when you say it became abnormal, it's those kind of things. It's like, well, I'm just going to go down and duck behind this tree, and I'm going to have a couple shots, and mm-hmm. I'll come back, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be fun, mom, and everything will be cool, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll have the edge off. Yeah, I'll yeah, just be happy because I don't want to be mean. You know, I'm, I and the, the stupid thing about this disease is that you will start to say, "I'm doing this for you." Yeah. So you get a better me. You know what I mean? I don't really want to, but I would just sit here and sulk and be hungover. But you deserve a better me. And the only way I'm a better me is if I put a couple of drinks in me. Thanks, then, Casey. I appreciate it. But 
Does that sound familiar? Oh, completely familiar, yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. And just out of curiosity, had you gotten treatment for your Graves' disease yet, or was that still... I would get, like, I'd get my levels checked on occasion if yeah. I was feeling off, but they would come back normal. Like, uh, yeah. But I, again, I think it's because I was suppressing it with, with alcohol. With alcohol, yeah. yeah. But when the partying, in your own words, comes to be abnormal, did you ever... Did your husband or did any friends ever go, hey, um, you know what, you, you might want to think this through? My husband would definitely say stuff. Um, he hated me drinking because I'd get belligerent. <laughs> I'd be mean. I, I, usually I was mean. Um, very insulting. A lot of, a lot of F-bombs would fly um, when I was drunk. Um, so he did not like me drinking. Um, we got that's where we and that's when cycles started happening is my, my husband didn't like me drinking and he was got very cold and he'd be kind of mean mm-hmm. and so i would drink um to cope with that and then it was just and then i'd be drinking and then he'd be like so you're both playing cold, off each other in a negative way yeah, right it was yeah, very, kind of kind of bad influence on each mm-hmm. other that way yeah it was mm-hmm. a pretty hostile um what was his drinking like just out of curiosity he's just a he's a normal drinker so, so he, so he wasn't doing that. He'll have an occasional that. beer with dinner, but he doesn't like need it to have okay. the drink. So he was able to stay just, mm-hmm. you know, parties only, weekends only, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And then did he drink to excess? Was he somebody who got really drunk? No, no. no. He, yeah, he would just, yeah, he would drink on occasion. He'd like drink to excess, but it would. He doesn't have a problem with alcohol <laughs> like I do. Um, so you guys were feeding off each other. Definitely feeding off each other. Um, life was getting a little bit little difficult um that i got my first dui in 2016 and that is when things really started going downhill um when you get your first dui like you need to go have an assessment done you need Mm -hmm. to maybe have some treatment um but so i'm an i'm a nurse and i know i know how to talk about assessments i do i complete assessments um and so I didn't think I had a problem at that time, and so I passed my assessment, move on my merry way. But Can I ask about the first DUI? Like, was it just sort of a normal situation? You got pulled over, had to walk the line? I mean, sometimes curious people are curious what how you, how a person gets identified <laughs> as driving drunk. I was coming up – so all my DUIs, by the way, are in the same spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was driving – I think I was just, like, driving around um, – blowing off steam and I dropped my phone so I slowed down and mm. so they the officer saw abnormal um, driving and then he pulled me over and I couldn't pass the the test okay was it a breathalyzer walk the line the walk the line I couldn't pass yeah. that and then the breathalyzer I can't remember what I blew but but, but the first yeah. DUI and and and, and I, I can speak on the behalf of mm-hmm. DUIs um, you know the first DUI and the system is set up uh, for a person who gets one like she said, it's pretty easy to convince yourself that this is a one-time thing. Most alcoholics would be thinking, like, oh, I can't believe I finally got caught. Mm-hmm. But if you know how to do the test and you mm-hmm. do that, you lose your license for three months and you're back on the roads. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or for in my situation, the officer didn't show up to the um, the driver's license hearing, so I'd never lost my license. And I was able to pass the therapy portion when I had my meeting with a counselor. Um 
And I think that the folks in the medical professional (laughs) kind of know how to talk the talk a little Mm -hmm. bit, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you said that's when it started to get a little unraveled. Yeah. So I have a so I have a DUI. There's then the situation got pretty hostile at home. Um, Still raising my kids, running them here and there, driving hundreds, thousands of miles up and down the road in Camas um, to get to ball games, to get to their events. I'm still, I'm, I'm a good mom, supportive. Um, my life literally revolved my my kids while my marriage was unraveling. <laughs> Excuse me. So um, I, at this point, I had a lot of shame. Like, I mean, that's embarrassing to get a do. I'm a nurse. Like, I need, to, I'm, I'm all for advocate for health. Like, I teach people about, um, I teach them to better get their health health under control and how to cure disease and so on and so forth. Um, and it was embarrassing and I was humiliated and I carried a lot of shame. So I also, sorry, honest, to go back to my nursing career, I also, I de- I've detoxed a lot of alcoholics. Um, and that gave me like a perception of alcohol like that I can compare to like, well, I'm not in the hospital detoxing. Mm. I'm not belligerent. I don't need lorazepam. I'm not seizing. Therefore, I don't have a problem. Had a lot of. Because you saw that extreme. I saw the extreme. Like, nothing mm-hmm. is quite more extreme when it comes to alcohol than seeing somebody detox, I'm sure. Yeah. Miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, my, I saw he was detoxing and he like was throwing punches. He had to get restrained. He was so. Like this one particular patient, I still remember his name. I don't remember a lot of patients' name, but I remember him. So, or I see people dying from liver failure because they drank them, they killed their liver from alcohol. I'm like, so my perception of alcohol is like, why can't you just stop? Like, why would you do? Why would one person do this to themselves? But I didn't understand that they couldn't at that time. Yeah. So I had this preconceived idea about alcoholics, and um, and I wasn't one of them. Um, yeah, but you were. That I was. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that interesting that like you're you're a nurse, you're a medical professional with all that medical health training, you, you're working with people in lots of different ways, including detox, and yet you were as susceptible as anybody else to that stereotype uh, that that you could just stop. You know what's wrong with these people? Why can't they just be tougher about it? Isn't that interesting? Right? Mm-hmm. Like that's such a pervasive problem in our culture that even somebody in the medical and i i can say i know people in mental health that have the same you know prejudiced ideas about things uh for whatever reason uh and in your case it might have been sort of self-serving right because it was a defense mechanism to kind of that's not me so if i can sort of vilify (laughs) this person then then i then i can't identify with them and then if i don't identify with them then i can't be considering myself an alcoholic or having a problem with alcohol. Mm -hmm. So there may have been some kind of unconscious mental, you know, gymnastics going on there. But um, it's interesting that that is, man, what a powerful issue that we have to deal with in our culture. Most addicts Mm -hmm. will walk into the room and I've I've sat in process groups with people and go, well, you don't understand. I'm different. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not like (laughs) you guys. We are all the same. I'm different. You know, that's why I went, well, but you were. But so you're walking around, uh, you're driving your kids, uh, you say you just feel a ton of shame. And uh, I know that shame all too well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not your only DUI. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So then my, so we're having the marital problem cycle of me drinking, um, a lot of contention at home. And so at this point now, I deserve to drink. 
because you're being mean, so I'm going to drive down that road where nobody can see me, and I'm going to drink. So that became very normal. My husband would call me, where are you at? Nowhere. What are you doing? Nothing. Like over and over again. I was literally right down the road. Like I live in, a, there's a lot of land, a lot of area, a lot of places for me to disappear to. Um, <laughs> so, and so that became normal. And then at this point, like he's telling me I have a drinking problem. I'm kind of recognizing that I have one, but now I don't know what to do with it because I have a position of trust as a nurse. Um, I can't get sick because if I do, then I'm not trustworthy and I can't practice. And so I didn't know how to get help. I like I'm like I know all my resources. I know AA. I know um, treatment centers. FMLA's. I like I like I can take FMLA, but I didn't know how to say I need to get help and take FMLA without shooting myself in the foot and being creating I, a big red flag be, be, yourself, being yeah. identified as an alcoholic who is a risky person and a scary person. But the the fact of the matter was, is I performed really well at my job. I was a great nurse. I was a great mom, but um, I was successful and I was mm-hmm. doing a good job, but I was suffering. And at this you know, point. that compensation, the ability mm-hmm. to compensate tricks ourselves mm-hmm. into thinking, well, I'm okay because, and then in some unrelated area of life, oh, I'm killing it over here. <laughs> yeah. So I can't have a problem over here. Well, that doesn't make any logical sense. It's just, you know, self-delusion, but that's what happens in the process of Addiction is we delude ourselves and we, we start to justify it. And it's like, well, I'm doing great at work. I'm doing great with the kids. So I don't know why I have a problem. And if I'm not doing great in the marriage, well, you know, it's maybe that's fault. your fault. Too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay everywhere else. So yeah, I get that. And I think that's a really, I mean, I bet you there's somebody listening right now that might go, Oh shoot, that sounds like me. <laughs> that was me. Yeah. I mean, they jumped down to the thing where I sat down with KSL and they said, Hey, had you told us you had a problem, you'd still be working here. And but I, it's scary to do that. Yeah, and I mean, that's but, what you were but saying. How do I right? come up and tell you yeah. that I'm broken and then not? And I'll to- be honest, the, the culture of that is better. Yeah, no, it's just changing. But that's. That's a post hoc analysis by KSL. Oh, yeah. I don't know what would have happened if you'd have gone in ahead of time. I'd like to trust them. I'd like to think I, that they would have. I do trust them. I do I, think they would have. Okay, but I want people to listen that it's like that. I empathize, especially in the medical field, that that's a hard thing to do to walk in and say, I'm having one of the, an addiction problem. That's why I think mm-hmm. it's so brave of Becky to come on this podcast. I've had been reached out to emergency room doctors, airline pilots. Uh, truck drivers, all who have said, I don't know how to have this conversation and not threaten my livelihood. Yep. And to that, I say, you're threatening your livelihood already. Well, yeah, you're, you're just, you know, and that's where it goes back to the beginning of this podcast where you hope that this is going to go away. Right. So I think that we, we have laws in place now that, that to some degree protect people. You know, you can't fire someone for alcoholism and those kinds of things, having addictions. And most places, I think the, the culture's changing where most places do want to, you know, give you a chance yeah. and maybe help you, but I don't know. It's still a tough, I empathize with people that are in that position. So you're drinking down at the end of the road. Uh, you're fighting with your husband. Uh, you're recognizing that you might have a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. But you're in a dilemma because you don't know what you can do without jeopardizing your job and your livelihood. That is exactly um, what happened. I um, I went and I 
talked to a church leader about like, hey, I'm having really trouble. There was like a lot. There was a like serious family conflict going on, um, and it was recommended that I go try this AA group. So I go to this AA alcoholic anonymous group. It was church sponsored, and I was very uncomfortable being there. And it wasn't. These people were great. It just it didn't. Um, it was ran by somebody that this was their calling. I don't know if they had a substance use disorder. Um, so I felt like they didn't relate. Um, and I, so I built on that cause that just didn't work out and I just didn't know what to do. <laughs> like I, I, I was, I was at this point suffering. Um, I was miserable. I was angry. Oh, I had rage that, <laughs> that was just terrible. Um, I was able to go to work. Oh, and I was cycling. Now I had, now I had my drink, my hangover day, where I would, I could still work. Um, I drink at night. Sorry, I drink at night. I'd have my hangover day, um, where I would work. I'd go to work, and then on that third day, I couldn't wait to get it home from work so that I could drink because now my brain isn't functioning correctly. Um, it was becoming that like I had to have that to function. Um, and I noticed it, but I still didn't know what to do. Like, what and, were some of the symptoms you were struggling with? You said your brain wasn't functioning. But, I mean, what symptoms did you notice? Um, just like I had a huge urge to drink. Um, I was very anxious. Um, and I was almost like preoccupied with it. Yeah, I could go and say take care of my patient. I was working home care. I could go take care of my patient. And and I was safe to do that. Like I was very competent. Um but I always had that in the back of my mind, like, when is this day going to be over? I need to go drink. As soon as you're not focused on yeah. a problem for the patient, then yeah. your brain drifts off yeah. to, yeah. you know, when am I going to be able to drink? I wish I could drink, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Were you struggling with physical symptoms at all, like in the morning, feeling shaky or you know, having a hard time staying asleep at night? Or, um, n- Yeah, I would be up all night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely had trouble going to sleep. I'd, so I'd fall asleep at like 2 in the morning, so I was sleep deprived. But, I mean, that's part of the alcohol withdrawal portion is is that you don't sleep (laughs) right and so that would yeah so i'd be try i would be tired but i still was a little bit functional so you're trying some sort of rehabs uh you tried the 12-step program that the church provides Mm -hmm. uh you're going through that home life is a wreck Mm -hmm. uh you're managing your job and your kids and everything but you're looking forward to the days you can drink yeah uh where does it take a turn so it took the really drastic turn is when um, I think I had had another argument with my husband and I left the house to get away and I <laughs> was drinking and I needed to just leave and um, I needed more alcohol. And so I was driving to go to the gas station um, to get more alcohol. No, wait, wait, I got to reverse. We're having a lot of problems and I disappear and I drive up into the mountains and I'm drinking and I made a wrong turn and took my car off of a cliff and hit a tree. Yeah, that's a pretty big – Whoa. Yeah. So did I make a wrong turn to hit the, to go off that cliff to hit a tree or did I drive off to hit the tree? I'm pretty sure I drove off to hit the tree is my hindsight. Mm. Um, I was drunk. Um, but I was so desperate to have like some peace and some help that um, that was like my only solution is to – hopefully in my life it didn't work out that way the tree saved my life i was in complete denial still that like like i didn't know what to do <laughs> like i do i have a problem what how am i going to get help how am i going to get myself out of this this ditch that i'm in where i feel like i'm getting literal dirt shoveled on top of me and i'm cr- trying to crawl out and the dirt 
keeps on falling on me and I didn't know how to get out at that point. And so it was probably just to like disappear, be gone. So um, I got my car pulled out. It got, it was totaled. I bought a new car, um, still carrying on working as if like nothing ever happened. Just like, oops, that, what an, there was an accident there. So but, your cry for help went unanswered. Yeah, it was just yeah. I and I don't know if it was unanswered or if I didn't express it correctly. It was just like, oh, Beck, you don't drink and drive off a cliff, <laughs> like <laughs> like duh, like yeah. yeah. And it like, sounds it was, like yeah. there was a certain amount of uh, you know repression of having insight about wow, that was desperate. Wow, that was mm-hmm. reckless. I was yeah. feeling uh, suicidal, mm-hmm. and and I need some help. It's you know once you sobered up, it sounds like you sort of shoved that back down yeah yeah I, I knew i was a i knew i was a train wreck but i just didn't know what to do it was just terrible so i buy a new car it's not it's not registered and i get in an argue with my husband i get in my unregistered car because it was bought from a dealership where i had to have the police look at the car and run the background on the car to make sure it wasn't stolen so mm-hmm. i went to go get the title and get it registered and they told me that so I'm driving down the road with my unregistered car and have my brights on at, at the stop, uh, a stoplight or a stop sign. Go through the stop sign, and a cop car flips around, and I, he turns on his lights. And I'm like, "What on earth? Like, I haven't even done anything. I didn't know I was drunk. Like, at this point, I have such a high tolerance that, like, I, like I didn't feel drunk. I didn't know I was drunk. Apparently, I was. So he, I, may, it took me a while to pull over, which was a sign that I'm intoxicated and trying to hide something when in reality I just didn't want to get pulled over in front of somebody's house. <laughs> so, oh, okay. yeah. so that was a sign of that. And then he, I don't know if he pulled my background and that I have a history of DUI and I, was, I have my dog in the car. My dog's barking, about ready to eat the officer. Mm. <laughs> and anyhow, gets me out of the car. I can't pass the test. He says I have nystagmus. Like my eyes are shaking. Um, I, and this is where it kind of like, I questioned this pullover. You know, I, I'm not denying that, like, I had drank, but I, I still question it a little bit. Uh, but regardless, there's my second DUI. Um, at that point, it, now there's no an option. I'm going to treatment. So, and I have to leave my house. So I leave my house and move up in with my sister, and I'm sleeping on our couch in the basement. So I'm kind of couch hopping and, like, don't know what's going to happen at home. Oh, I got fired, obviously. Um, the second after I got done with my, or I got out of jail, got home, I called my coworker and I said, "Hey, I just got a DUI. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I haven't been convicted of anything. Anyhow, she's like, I think that you need to report it. So I reported it. They went through corporate headquarters and they're like, "No, she's got to go," because I had a potential DUI. Um, so I lost my job. Um, this was in December. Right around Christmas. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. that's when yeah. that happened. So I lost my job, and um, I moved in with my sister, and who was really good to me. And I'm going to treatment, and I'm struggling in treatment. Like I, I'm, I like I want to get better, and I wanted it now. <laughs> and I would relapse, and I would beat the crap out of myself, like for real. Like and this is I, like an IOP. Mm-hmm. It's an IOP, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to that five nights a week. Met some great people in this IOP. People that struggle some that like that have recovered and are still there just for support and some people that are really struggling um and (laughs) still i'm still in denial believe it or not 
like, I can't believe that this is happening. Like, do I really need this IOP? I'm like, oh, yes, I needed that IOP. What I really needed was to go to inpatient. Because regard, because while I was in the IOP, I still had, like, a lot of distractions. I couldn't focus on myself. I had my husband that I was like, like you probably should get a job. Um, and my kids are old. They're adults now. So I'm a brand-new empty nester. Um, and I've lost my job. Like, I had all these, like, money pressure like I just didn't know what to do so I couldn't focus on my recovery or I didn't want to I'm not sure I wanted to no I wanted to get better um so I'm in the IOP I'm relapsing I ended up having to have my my keys and my purse taken away so I couldn't walk to the gas station I'm a beer drinker by the way Mm -hmm. so um I'm not I don't like hard alcohol based on my probably my first experience with Mm -hmm. drinking um mine was Bud Light yeah mine I, I went from Coors Light Bud Light to Natty Light to PBRs, you know, like you don't get a blue ribbon for coming in second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like my my drug of choice was at every gas station and every grocery store. So it was always in my face. Oh, you and Casey relate to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. so they take your keys and your purse away. Yeah. So you can't walk to the gas station. So I can't walk to the gas station to go buy any alcohol because I'd go buy a tall one or something. I'd just like go and go and walk. You know? Yeah, go get a twenty four ouncer. <laughs> yeah, and and just because re- I was now I'm anxious. Because I'm detoxing, I'm anxious. I'm not sleeping. I I don't think I had a good night's sleep probably for that from January till March. We'll say mm-hmm. um, didn't have any. I like I was detoxing. Like I wasn't seizing. I didn't need medical detox, but I was I was struggling. And then at that time, my, I think my Graves' disease started popping up. So my detox, like my anxiety, was through the roof. Um, a lot of a lot of outside issues going on and I couldn't focus on myself because I had, I had zero self-worth at this point. (laughs) Like I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was devastated. I was threatened. Um, so as a nurse, I'm, I have a nursing license, which is managed by Doppel. Um, and so I have Doppel calling me saying, what's going on? You can't be practicing. So I think I'm going to lose my nursing license. I'm terrified. I have to go face my second DUI charge in court. And then COVID hit. And so then we go into a lockdown and um, there's not like resources. Like I, I know there's AA meetings, but I couldn't go to the AA meetings because they're not in person now. I didn't know how to get a hold of anybody. I didn't know how to treat my disease, right. which is shocking because like, that's what I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I was so – my brain was so um, off at that point that I couldn't make decisions and I couldn't find resources that would help me because I – couldn't think <laughs> well and to be yeah. fair i mean that all is true of course part of the disease but to be fair when um when covid hit it turned the medical community upside down mm-hmm. in trying to figure out like how do we still work with people and you know I, for a, for a period of time i would say at least six months uh programs that had all traditionally been in person were no longer available and it, it took a while mm-hmm. for uh, the, the recovery community and, and mental up. health and a lot of things to start to utilize those things. So I'm sure that that, that was an added oh, yeah. issue beyond the disease that yeah. you were dealing with. Yeah. yeah, I was struggling for sure. And then COVID hit and I decided to go home. I'm like, well, I can't just stay here sitting here. I need to at least go home and work on my house because my house is in a re- disastrous remodel. So I went home and the second I left – past Morgan and um, 
And we're I re- a bad I, influence on people. I relapsed. <laughs> you relapsed. I relapsed, and I didn't know what to do because I'm heading home. My husband's gonna be pissed off at me. He's like, "You're in treatment." I'm like, what are you doing? Like, uh, like I was, and um, I went and I hopped on my IOP meeting because it went to Zoom, and and like I'm relapsing while I'm in this in the Zoom IOP meeting, and they called me, and they're like, my sister called me, my therapist called me, nobody could walk me off that cliff, like. It was like I was so – it was like where your serotonin comes back and you take that drink and it hit me like a freaking a ton of bricks. And I got drunk really fast and I like pulled over. I'm like there's something wrong. Something is wrong. So I pull over. At least I have the common sense to pull over. Uh-huh. So I pull over and I'm like either I'm going to go to jail or I'm going to die because I'm not safe. And so I sat there and my sister and my brother-in-law pulled up. They're like knocking on my door. They came from Ogden to find me. Like I wasn't answering my phone. And um, my brother unlocks on my door and this, uh, they're ready to take me. And I would have gone to inpatient at that point if I could get in with COVID. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, a police officer pulled up at the same time. So this is literally three months after my first or my second DUI. And I got arrested again for my third Um Part of this, so I have doppel on my butt. I am detoxing. I'm failing because I wanted it now. I wanted I wanted to be sober because I'm not patient. Yeah, I, it, microwave like, society. Mm-hmm. Give it to me now. Give me hot. Get it ready. Let's yep. do it. Yep. Like I, I stopped drinking. Now I'm sober. Like why is this so hard? Like it was such a huge battle. <laughs> like it, it was terrible. And then COVID hit, and and my court. I lost my court date. I was losing jobs. I was applying for jobs. I got a, I got offered a job, and I couldn't get a job because I had pending charges. I could, and I couldn't get out of court because the court system was shut down. Yeah, yeah, and it was a perfect storm. Yeah, it's like it was, it was that was a very awful time in my life. It was an awful two years. While I was stuck in the court system, I couldn't get out. I was trying to recover. Um, then I ended up, then COVID's happening, and you're seeing people die in New York City, and New Jersey. And it's all over the news. And they're looking for nurses. And they're looking for nurses. And I can't find a job because I can't pass a background check. And I have pending charges, but they waive background checks. So, Because they want, they needed nurses and they, they needed, needed them now. now. Yep. Yeah. So off I flew off and I worked in New Jersey. Um, I worked directly across from, the, from Manhattan. You could see Manhattan from the Hudson. So I was living in a hotel in New York City, taking the bus. I was working um, COVID shifts. It was something that... Um, was unbelievably like hard. Are you still drinking at the time? I'm going to my IOP meetings at night. I'm working the night shift, by the way. I'm going to my IOP meetings at night, but I'm drinking. I would walk over to the little gas station because I love my gas stations and buy and buy um, beer and then and then drink. And then that's another part of my problem. That's that that was a I got to step back a little bit, but my transition from being a Normal drinker to a like, ooh, things are getting pretty sketchy. Is I would work the night shift. I worked the night shift for years, and I'd have to crank up on on caffeine um, to stay awake so I could take care of patients. And then I'd have to drive home. I couldn't like fall asleep driving home, so I'd still like be a little bit wound up. I had a busy night. Like patients like gave me anxiety, and I'd have to drink to go to sleep. Yeah, so, so the upper and the downer. Yep. Yeah, so I drink a beer to get me to sleep because I had to get up the next night, drive to work, take care of people, not kill anyone because I'm tired, 
And so, and that's, and that is definitely the tipping point was working the night shift. Yeah. And the night shift, man, that mm-hmm. will mess up yeah. your, your cognitive abilities because it's just not our normal circadian rhythm. And so even when people get eight or nine hours of sleep, but it's during the day and they're up all night, it creates a lot of sleep disorders. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people find themselves in that trap that you're describing of taking something to get up and then taking something to go down. I was in it. So you're in New Jersey across uh, the bay from Manhattan mm-hmm. and um, just just trying to maintain, doing I'm what you can. I'm trying to maintain. I'm, a again, pretty chaotic situation It was a very work, chaotic though, situation. It was horrifying. It was heartbreaking. Um, There's a lot of codes. There was never seen people that sick in my life. I've been a nurse for 20 years. These people were sick and um, there wasn't enough people. And so – and a um, lot of codes for people that aren't nurses. What does that mean? A lot of codes. Oh, like people dying, like a code yeah. blue. Like this right. person is going and we need to get in there like now and get them on a so ventilator. it was serious and it was chaotic and it was yeah. unprecedented. Yeah. So that's a lot of stress for a person who's trying not to drink. To and while yeah. you're over there, are, are the charges still pending? The charges are still pending because the court system didn't open up again until I think I want to say August. Yeah, it, like was it went from March to summer. August. Yeah. yeah, it was gone all summer. So had these pending charges. Yeah, I wasn't there for very long, but it was long enough. Um, and I hope, like I, I was the perfect person to go there because I, I'm a nurse. I can help, and I don't care if I die. <laughs> so, like, I wasn't scared of COVID because it didn't matter if I got it. Then, then, then you're feeling self destructive. Yeah. Then, then I can like disappear from Utah. I don't have to deal with my charges, and I can just go. <laughs> um, I also but wanted life had, life had a different. Mm-hmm. Plan for you. I also wanted to um, run away, <laughs> so that was a good place to run away. And and it, although it was chaotic, and although I was still drinking and going to my IOP, that was a game changing moment for me because then I could be on my own, and I learned that I can be on my own. I don't have to have all of these like extrinsic factors that give me self worth, like my husband, like my kids, because um, my kid, I'm an empty nester. Like my kids love me, but they They're they don't doing need their me. own thing. Yeah, yeah, they don't need me anymore. Um, I still had my job. Um, I was still able to work, I should say. I was still able to help people. Um, and then I came home. And the story continues. <laughs> Come home to a couple charges. Came home to a couple charges. And I was pretty obstinate about it. I wanted to fight them. And had I fought them, I'd probably be in prison right now. Um, so I took a plea deal with the charges. I, I had quite. I had one heck of a lot. Lawyers are not created equal. I learned that. One <laughs> um, of them got fired. I hired another one and took a pretty decent plea deal. The plea deal was um, ten days in jail, and to they. I'm not charged with a felony right now because if I had a felony, I wouldn't be able to work. So I took a plea deal um, for reduced charges and drug court. So I'm in drug court for DUIs. I don't have a. I I don't I don't do drugs. Um, but and probably half the people in drug court are there for felony DUI, and the other half are there for um, substi- like crimes committed while under the influence. But as of today, you are over a year and a half sober. I'm over a year and a half sober, and it was I stared with the devil, like literally, and I am sober and I won. But that's just the horror of this disease. That and it like I firmly believe it's a disease. I have no reason. I don't have trauma, uh, like maybe little bits of trauma, but. I, like I'm not your classic person. Like I have no reason to be an alcoholic is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I am. 
And I think that's what I want to share with people is that the stigma is real. Like, um, I had to fight hard to go back to work um, because people thought that I was unsafe, that I would hurt somebody, that um, I lost a lot of jobs. I applied. (laughs) I went to a lot of job interviews, and I got a lot. I got rejected a lot. And then I I interviewed, and I found, like, I have an excellent manager and an excellent coworker that they don't – my life is not based on my addiction. They know that. Like I'm a, like I'm a very good person um, that got caught up in something that I could not control. And I regret my feelings that I had towards other, like I didn't hate people. Like I understood, like I was compassionate, um, but I didn't understand. Um, and I think that this journey has been insane, but I wouldn't, like you can brand me with the scarlet letter now. Because I can carry that with um, no regret, and I can, and I feel like I have an opportunity to help other people that are scared of having that brand of an addict, um, because it's silly, it's wrong, um, and there's a lot of education that needs to take place to change these this stigma of like that people are like worthless and that they aren't safe and. That I'm going to steal pills or, you know, because this is what people think or that I I have a hangover or. So how did you get sober? I mean, because you said you came back from New Jersey and you got put into drug court. Mm -hmm. Is drug court what helped you get sober or. How I got sober is, well, I pled guilty to um, my, my second DUI. And with that, I got a probation officer and a breathalyzer. In your car? In my that I'm blowing three times a day, a, oh. home, a handheld breathalyzer, a sober link, whatever you want to call it. That's what got me sober. Um, is that if I blew dirty, or if I blew, uh, if I showed alcohol, if I registered, yeah, there's a word, I would be going to jail. And so, at that point, I didn't want to go to jail because I was like, you already spent ten days there. I was like regaining my my life again and like starting to feel good. Um, but yeah, the breathalyzer is what got me sober. And I wish it would have been AAA. Um, I wish that I could, would have been able to listen. I wish I would have been able to calm down. But that wasn't what worked for me. I had to have a probation officer and law enforcement, and that got me sober. I don't need that anymore. I think that the first three months is pretty hard. Um, and then after that, I lost my craving, and I lost. I was starting to clear and um, be able to see um, things as they are instead of these concocted, like, crazy things that like I thought was happening because alcohol messes with your emotions. It messes with your perceptions of things. It messes with reality, reality. And your, your reality is like, that's not normal to go down the road and drink, but that was normal to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So does drug court help you stay sober? Um, in drug court, I don't, I don't care. Like they, uh, this is no secret, but I don't care for the court portion of it. Like I meet with a judge and um, for the first, gosh, six months of it, probably three, four, five, six, seven, for the first nine months of it, I'd see a judge every week. Um, I didn't like that the, it felt like very punitive and I didn't like that part about it. But what I, and I still don't, um, but what I have met the most amazing people. Um, and that's another thing is that, um, I've met really cool people that suffer. They're not they they have criminal charges, but they're not criminals. They are beautiful people, and I'm so grateful to have met them 
and to like share this journey of that's been really hard. Um, yeah. Can I ask about your husband? Oh, I have a great marriage. Oh, see, oh, there I we love go. that. Yeah, nice. le- yeah, you eliminate the alcohol, and it's just amazing what happens. <laughs> you know, like yeah, we have a great marriage. Um, my husband loves me, and and he always did, but. <laughs> He didn't want. He didn't want anything to do with that. Um, and can you blame him? It sounds like you were a little unpleasant when, <laughs> when you were drinking. I, well, he was. Yeah, it was both. It, it took two to tango on this right. one. Yeah, it yeah. always does. And, yeah. and I think that's you know we talk about alcohol or addiction as being a family disease. <laughs> mm-hmm. It affects everybody. It brings out the worst in mm-hmm. in all of us. So I'm sure it brought out the worst in him. It brought out the worst sure. in you. Mm-hmm. And that's not sustainable. But I'm so glad to hear that you guys are doing well so dr matt i mean i i love it and you're currently working as a registered nurse uh you found people that who love you and appreciate you and uh, value your service mm-hmm. and uh, i mean that's you say that that's not like a typical story that's that's a pretty that's a, i think that there's a lot of detail there yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a little bit more to it though i forgot to tell you so um with my nursing license i'm followed by uphp it's utah professional health program mm-hmm. um so they like I am drug tested. <laughs> like I pee in a cup. Um, there, there is no doubt that I am clean and sober when I go to work. Um, they have ample evidence of right. that. Um, there's treatment requirements. So my nursing license just wasn't like, oh, okay, here you go. Baby. No, no, I go know. back to work. Like, um, so I, not only do I have drug court, but I also have UPHP. I, I got a double. I got a double whammy here. Yeah. So and and that's what comes with it when you have a a position. Um, such as a, being a nurse or a doctor. That's what the program's designed for nurses, doctors, dentists, therapists, physical therapists, therapists. But, yeah. it, but yeah. it's an important thing. And, and, and you know, you, you put yourself in that situation, so you'll do what you need to continue to work. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah. I think it's a little, even a little more than that. And I don't, you know, want to put words in your mouth, but when you have a, a, a helping profession, when you're somebody like you mentioned, any of those healthcare types of people, it becomes part of who you are. You know, it mm-hmm. becomes part of your self perception and how you think about who you are. It literally is I'm someone who helps somebody else. Mm-hmm. And when when a part of who you are is threatened to be taken away, it's awesome to see people dig in and fight and be willing to have all that extra oversight and the hassle of mm-hmm. peeing in the cup and doing all these things because you're like, I don't want to give up part of who i am i'm gonna yeah. fight for it yeah for sure yeah this isn't about the money like there's don't get paid that well um it, this is definitely it, it has become part of my identity and and when that was taken from me for that amount of time um this probably i probably lost about a year that was really hard and that really affected my sobriety like it that's when and, that's when it was white knuckling like fight that's when i was fighting for my life and that's why <laughs> It's so great that there are certain programs out there. Casey had a program that helped him, you know, drive so that he could work and do those things. And we have this healthcare oversight program that helps people uh, see, you know, the program is there if you'll take advantage of it to be your best self and allow you to continue to, to flourish. Because when your identity is taken away, you can see how easily a person just can fall back into their addiction. So I think those Mm -hmm. sorts of programs are really beneficial if people will take advantage of them. For sure. 
Well, from one yeah. guy who peed in a cup to another lady who peed in a cup, I'm proud of you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, I mean, but, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you that. I mean, I joke about that, but that is not a fun experience. And you know what I mean? No, it's humiliating. It's I humiliating. Think, yeah. You know, and you go there and there's got to be a guy in the room. Well, and, your power and control over your life's mm-hmm. taken away. But, but you lost it. So, yeah, but yeah. you have to go, this is what I need to do to get my life back. Then this is what I'm going to do. And I think that's very apropos of what recovery is about. You you need to do what you need to do to get your life back and yep. you just have to do the work it's not something that you can just hope goes away right you can hope for a better life and i can tell you this there is a better life at the end of it yep. but you've got to do the work nobody can do it for you you're going to create it so thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your story it is absolutely amazing and it will help someone out there it'll help multiple i hope so like yeah especially the medical community and like COVID's been very hard on that community, and I know that I know how people cope. Well, I like, get yeah, emails. Right, <laughs> I get emails from first responders all the time, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. from firefighters to EMTs to emergency room doctors who love the show and would love to come on, but are afraid of the repercussions. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. If, if they shared their story. So I'm glad you were brave enough to stand up and do it. Hopefully, I don't have repercussions. I mean, I don't see any like. No, this no. is just my, a part of my life. You're like doing... a very small story that I have that was very scary and like terrifying like to say the least but i that doesn't define me it yeah it, like i'm far bigger than this well you're <laughs> so, awesome thank yeah. you very much thank you and project recovery is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org and uh in case you forgot project recovery is what you know it's a ksl podcast casey biggity biggity oh <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.